1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 505th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a stand-up comedian, actor, and author who has been a fan favorite for decades. Perhaps best known as one of the four stand-ups featured in Spike Lee's blockbuster documentary, The Original Kings of Comedy, back in 2000, he also starred on TV programs such as the WB's The Steve Harvey Show from 1996 through 2002, and on CBS's The Neighborhood. Which began in 2018 and is heading into its sixth season. And he's also been in numerous films, most notably the Barbershop trilogy, with installments in 2002, 2004, and 2016. Back in 2002, A.O. Scott wrote in the New York Times, quote, He takes his obligations to the audience seriously, and no comedian working today holds up his end of the bargain better. Close quote. He, of course, is Cedric Kyle's, better known as. Cedric the Entertainer. Over the course of our conversation at the LA offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 59 year old and I discussed his unexpected path to comedy and the origin of his unusual stage name, his occasional forays into dramatic acting in films such as 2007's Talk to Me, 2008's Cadillac Records, and 2017's First Reformed, his debut novel, Flipping Boxcars, co written with Alan Eisenstock, which was inspired by a grandfather he never met and which Amistad, a division of HarperCollins, will release on September 12th, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Cedric, thank you so much for coming and doing this. Uh, Great to have you. And to begin with, can we just share with our listeners, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
0: I was born in Jefferson City, Missouri. That's the capital of Missouri, the state capital uh and uh, my mother was a school teacher for over 30 years a uh, uh elementary school educator a uh, reading specialist and then my father worked for uh, the version of AT&T so okay. it was like it was it was western something electric for a while and they that company kept growing too. Yeah. eventually it was AT&T same company for Got many it. years any siblings yeah uh, retired i have a younger sister who is a professor at Pepperdine University? Oh, wow. She teaches speech, uh, public speaking.
1: Cool. Yeah. So, I read that you were interested in performing from an early age to the extent that maybe there was a, a school sort of like fame where you were. Yeah. You
0: wanted to go there. It didn't happen, right? No, it was too. It was too far from my home. You know, we had moved to the suburb, uh, suburban area of St. Louis. I would have had to take a bunch, of, bunch of city buses to go to the school. And my mom just, you know, again, being a single parent, you know, raising us, she just couldn't really handle me, like literally ride probably 30 miles to school. Jeez. So where you did go to
1: school, and I think you moved, I read you moved a bit as a kid,
0: were you known as a funny kid? Yeah, definitely. I (laughs) I was, you know, I definitely kind of grew into that. It was funny because my mother was a uh, a school teacher in the district. So I was not the class clown. but you would have heard of that, yeah, right? yeah, exactly. They would have been like, I know your mother. Yeah. Uh-uh. But I was very witty, definitely was known for having a, a sense of humor. And, you know, of course, I was the guy that they, you know, my friends would, you know, if the, if they got to doing the dozens or, you know, doing the, you know, what they call bagging uh, on people at lunch, then, you know, my friends wait to see it come. You don't want it, you don't want it when see it come. You know.
1: So eventually you uh, – head off to Southeast Missouri State University yeah. and I see you majored in communications. At that time of your life, not that you had to know, but what did you think you might want to do with your life at that point?
0: I really thought I was going to be a lawyer. Really? You know, it was it was interesting. Like, again, I, I performed in plays and in singing groups in high school. Never really, you know, once my mother, you know, made you know, kind of like made me really focus on the trajectory of going to college, I you know then my best my best kind of attribute was being argumentative, like a person that could and, and debate mm-hmm. if you will more more so than argumentative I would say i was be, I was good at debate, making a point, being able to kind of be in these circles where I can like you know counter any argument so I was like, oh, and I loved law shows like that was my thing like <laughs> from from Madlock to Perry Mason to l a law like all those shows was that was me, so I was like, this is what I would do.
1: Instead, you graduate, and what was the first job after school?
0: So, you know, the first job after I graduated was I was uh, I got it, and it was interesting because I actually had gotten a job. Throwing, I mean, uh, being at a CBS affiliate as a, as a news reporter never got to go to work. The job got canceled before I actually ever went into work. You would have been an on air news I would guy? have been a, like a, a, a reporter. And this was in the early days of the fun news when mm-hmm. uh, like shows like Entertainment Tonight were making, a, you know, making a stride and coming on. And so each local station was hiring a guy to go do a fun story. And they, they hired me to do this. And, and, uh, uh, I always say this. Dan Rather got hired to be the the weekend. I mean, the evening, the nightly yeah, anchor, yeah. and he paid him eighteen million a year, <laughs> he took and they just they <laughs> took <laughs> that salary right from every affiliate <laughs> along the way. So I never actually got a chance to go to work. But so then I come home and I start working at Best Buy, mm-hmm. and eventually I had a paper route. I do mm-hmm. the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm uh and then uh finally land i sold fax machines for rico corporation and then finally landed at state farm as a claims adjuster
1: okay so the fact that cbs was interested in you for the funny segments did that had you auditioned? how did they know that you were even a funny guy
0: yeah, you know, of course, I'd study communications, and I had a reel. I did, I did, uh, you know, I had a, a, a TV show that I did in college. I did some local commercials for another station, not the CBS affiliate, um, but the even more local station there, I guess, like the Channel 11 or yeah. 9 or whatever to, of uh, of Cape Girardeau, Missouri. But I did some commercials for them. So I had a cool little reel, and I, and, uh, I had a radio show when I was in college. So I kind of gave them all these things, and they saw my personality and was like, all right, let's do it.
1: So, meanwhile, that gets dashed, that dream gets dashed, and you're at State Farm selling, as you say, uh, or doing claims adjusting. Uh, Is there, It was somebody else that worked there thought you were funny, or or was a comedian, or what was going on? No,
0: you know, it was, you know, at the time, I had a a great friend. We were roommates. We had a, a house together, and he had a friend that was a standout. And and his friend was, you know, out working as a stand-up. And he he would he would like he would go like, Man, that's funny, what you just said. Can I use that? (laughs) I was like, I don't know, I gotta go to work. Yeah (laughs) tomorrow. I have no idea what you're talking (laughs) about, bro. And so then one time he came home and he was like, Man, I made eleven hundred this week, I made fourteen hundred that week. I'm like, Doing what? He was like, Come, I told you I'm a stand-up. He was like, if anybody can do this, you can. And he basically Taught me how to do my set, signed me up for a big comedy t- comedy competition. It was the biggest at the time. The Johnny Walker National Comedy Competition was one they did locally, and you keep competing, keep competing until you wind up. The final, the winner would be on Johnny Carson, and that was a big deal. Like That was a big deal. Johnny Carson, maybe Jay Leno. It was the, the Tonight Show, yeah, whatever sure. version it was. Sure. I think it was still Johnny at that
1: time. So he's saying he signed you up, but you're – into the idea or was it well, nerve
0: wracking or what of, of course you know you you know but i've i you know i'd performed in plays and i'd been in singing groups so i've been on stage it wasn't like i just didn't think i could do stand-up and but you know he was a guy who again still works as a professional and and showed me how to do the set and that was it so i literally i won 500 dollars the first time i ever did comedy amazing yeah now
1: Had there been, had you consumed stand-up yourself before, whether it was live or on TV or anything? I'd read that one guy who meant something to you was Robin Harris. Was that right? Oh,
0: man, that was my guy. The The late Robin Harris was, again, was the comedian who, for the most part, inspired me to do it. In the sense that he was a guy that didn't look like the shiny superstar. I loved Richard Pryor. Of course, Eddie Murphy was of my era and amazing and was like superstar, and so, and then, you know, we started to get, meet the wins and but they all felt like New York and really polished and better, and Robin Harris was from Chicago, and just kind of performed like your uncle, like a cousin, and I was like, once I saw, like, you can actually become famous being, like, fairly regular or, in a way, super personable, okay. it became the thing I really uh, thought, okay, I can do this.
1: That's interesting, because yeah. that really has always been your your thing like right i mean people feel like they that you could be someone they know
0: yeah that's that's literally my brand man and i try to do that in the sense that that you know i feel that way coming from the midwest Come in, you know, single parent household, kind of like you're a butterfly. You're looking for father figures. You're constantly looking for, like, kind of approval. So you often, like, just communicate with people in this, like, hey, we're family already. Like, and so I think that I kind of took that attitude and, and loved the fact that I was able to bring it to stage and learn how to be even more comfortable. With it, and right. and of course, that there end up being a lane where you can become popular doing it too, because it's something about feeling too regular to people that you know, they won't they, ah, dude, you're like the you're like my barista <laughs> right. <More am>
1: <laughs> okay, so we'll get this one out of the way. I'm sure you get it every single time you've ever been interviewed. But how do we go <laughs> from Cedric Kyles? Yeah. to Cedric the entertainer with, I believe, Cheerio in the middle. That- <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let's stop playing with the name.
1: Don't play with my name.
0: <laughs> Cheerio was a legend, man. So, 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 Cheerio was just one of those. You know, of course, you try to figure out what your, you know, your career is, and and it was a guy that he went by Kodak. That's all I remember mm-hmm. is that he was Kodak, and I I was trying to think of a one word name, you know, that would had a C in it. And Cheer came up, Mm -hmm. and then Cheerio was a derivative of that. So So you tried that. So I was Cheerio. I had a chain and everything, (laughs) man. I had a chain. (laughs) This was early days, right? Super early days, man. Yeah. But but with some popularity, like people yeah. knew who I was locally in St. Louis. So
1: until I, and, I guess there and, was a cease and desist yeah, letter. Yeah, so, then,
0: <laughs> so General Mills, he was like, "No, sir, that's not going to happen." So because I think they put my name on a billing somewhere, right. and eventually it came back to them, like, "No, Kodak had to change his name too." Seriously? To name oh, jeez. Okay, so.
1: so then then of course. Cedric the Entertainer. That yeah. you weren't, you didn't grow up as that. It's not on your birth certificate. Where did that come along? No, no
0: you know, that was really fairly serendipitous too. I kind of, I always say like it's a really big name and a big moniker to to have had this long in doing my career. I've definitely had people tell me I should change it along the way, but it, it was really a, an opportunity when uh I was performing one night I did not have a lot of jokes uh-huh. and so but I used to because I had worked in corporate America I wanted to get paid uh the kind of money you get paid in time in comedians as as comedians you you know you're the opening act you get this amount you're the middle act you get this amount you're the headliner you get this amount uh-huh. the middle money only made sense to me because I was a guy that had a job yeah. so I was like I need to make the middle money I need to have 30 minutes worth of stuff I didn't have 30 minutes worth of jokes. So I would sing, I would dance, I would have a poem I would do. And so I just to basically told the guy, he was announcing everybody as this next comedian, this next comedian. I was like, don't call me a comedian, call me an entertainer. And he announced me as Cedric the Entertainer. And I, I went up, I had a great show. When I got out, he called me Cedric the Entertainer again, and that was it. I just kept it.
1: You embraced that, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I think if there's, there's, there's a handful of, like, turning points in anyone's life, it seems like one of yours would have been when you and Steve Harvey first met. Sure. So this, I believe, is like
0: late 80s? Yeah, yeah, like 80, 88 maybe, 87, 88, somewhere in there. How did this happen? Again, a, 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 you know, one of those kind of luck of the draw things. I was um, I was booked to perform at a comedy club in Dallas. I'd driven from St. Louis 10 hours. I was supposed to make $300 and you know, for the week 350 or something, I had a hundred dollars on me, so I was like, you know, I'll have a little food, I'll do the shows, I'll come back with you know with a nice little amount of money, I'll be good. You know, when I got there, it was new ownership at the club, and they were like, we don't do out of town opening acts, we do local opening acts. Sorry, Jeez. so I was like, yo, I happen to hear Steve on the radio. The same guy that taught me to do comedy knew knew Steve from being there, both pros. Who was this? Uh, Percy Cruz. Okay. Percy okay. Cruz was uh, the the comedian that kind of walked me into it, and so he 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 told Steve about me, and I knew about Steve through him. So I heard Steve on the radio promoting his comedy night. He's uh-huh. got a night going in Dallas. I go by. I'm like standing outside. I, Hey, man, Percy told me about you. He was like, come on in. And it just so happens that the guy that was the headliner was not doing well. He was bombing. Steve asked me, could I go up and do five minutes to get the crowd? And I did. And he just told me to keep coming back every night. He was like, if this dude bombs, I'm putting you up. If this dude bomb- <laughs> And you never want another comedian to do bad. Right. But, boy, I was putting the juju on yeah, dude, right. man. <laughs> So, but I've been, and then Steve was able to give me two hundred dollars to get home, and then he booked me immediately uh, to come back like a couple of months later to be a headliner and pay me a thousand dollars, and I'd never been paid a thousand dollars do comedy ever. So that was that was uh, we were locked in from there.
1: And you guys just on a personal level hit it off, also. Yeah, you know
0: that was the thing about it. You know, again, he's he was a great comedian, and he had a lot of clubs. He had a really great entrepreneurial spirit. So but when ever he would go to go work and do his bigger shows he would ask could I come and host his club for him and be the host. And so that ended up being a regular gig for me. Of course that you know solidified our friendship as someone he could trust to step in when I'm gone and then you know when he would show up we would just go on stage and have a good time together and just became really friends over the years so as the opportunities to do television and those kind of things came uh, came into fruition. They they were just that natural. This is my guy kind of thing. Steve so was like, "Give me said." That's it, Bob, if, if you're gonna, if I'm picking a team at the park, you know, like my one two. I'm yeah. like, you know, he would like give me said, and that was how I, how I got a lot of my TV breaks. That's
1: great. Well, yeah. so just to mention some of the early exposure that people might have had to you, um, you appear on at Showtime at the Apollo in '92. No, no. You host BT Comic View from '93 to '94. HBO, Def Comedy Jam, 95. In the middle of that, you win this Richard Pryor Comic of the Year Award. Um, But then in around 95, it seems like there was a decision to broaden into acting a bit. Yeah. And I wonder what – is that something that you think most comics, most comedians want to expand into just because it's another – another avenue to make a living or what, what for you was the reason to, to do that?
0: Oh, it's definitely the, the, the desire. I think most comedians, we started stand up and we see our natural tra- trajectory is to be, is to get a sitcom or become, you know, a movie star, which was very rare. I mean, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy again was on television. We loved him on Saturday night live. And then he very quickly became a movie star. Uh, That kind of led to me to, I think, uh, of the past of people like Chris Tucker, Mm -hmm. who were parallel with, you know, we were all the same, but then he became a movie star and kind of skipped television. And so you're like, oh, okay. So, uh, but for me, TV was natural. I, you know, I kind of, again, Steve was my most kind of guided light, and he did television. He went from stand up to TV, TV to, you know, making other kind of appearances, hosting, otherwise. So, i kind of I kind of looked at that as like that's the steps that I wanna make, and you know my comedy was one where I did a lot of characters anyway. I would do reenactments of my grandfather or <laughs> this this thing at a church and would act the whole thing out, right. so it became fairly natural for me to wanna uh to definitely wanna act next so
1: so just I think uh not even a year into you starting to audition and and go out for things, Steve has put together the Steve Harvey show. This goes on in 96, goes all the way to 2002. And I think from the beginning, his his character's best friend, roommate, the gym coach, was Cedric the Entertainer playing Cedric Jackie Robinson. Um, And I just wonder, I guess this was on – WB, WB, yeah, yeah WB. and syndicated on UPN, I think, right? A yeah, lot or...
0: afterwards, yeah, yeah. Afterwards, because uh, WB was the the big, they were the big thing at that time, and all those networks started around yeah. that same time. UPN, uh, uh, CW came a little bit afterwards, and then WB. It seemed like it was one other one. Fox was fairly new yeah. at that time too, maybe a year before those guys.
1: And all of those that you just mentioned, I remember. Um, I know this is kind of random but just this came up in another conversation recently um you know there was this period i guess sort of mid 90s maybe into the early 2000s right when you're doing the Steve Harvey show when sort of black sitcoms if you can oh. call it that were just omnipresent oh, yeah. and then they went away yeah and it was partly i guess because the networks uh Con- something, beca- something became the CW or whatever. Like there was some contracting and expanding and whatever. But like there was that moment yeah. when it was it was a golden age of. Uh, there's actually a a, um, a good book I just somebody gave me recently about this. I forget what it's called. But like, what what was your understanding of why all of a sudden, you know, aside from like the Norman Lear shows, there hadn't really been too many yeah. uh, black centric sitcoms.
0: No, I mean you had very few. Uh, You know the networks were growing. Of course, you you know you had the the juggernaut like the Cosby Show that was a big win. And then, like right, you said in that nineties, right there was the the new networks. It was this expansion of television. You know, cable had come you know come into real play. People started to see the opportunities of of growing. Fox uh, decided you know they they were creating a, a brand. And so I always say black sitcoms or the, uh, the $5 foot long of television. We, <laughs> it's the deal that you make to get everybody to come in. And then eventually, basically what they did, it was like, then they decide they want to be a little bit more, uh, you know, respected or something like that. And so you start to see all of those networks turn away from those shows. Uh, but again, it was a lot of networks coming to play, and that led to, you know, the opportunity to to you know to do contact with a with an audience that you know is gonna show up mainly for culture or to see themselves on television because it was such a um you know drastic you know emptiness without yeah. it otherwise yeah. so now now you know it's you know black people on television. You like I'm turning to that, and that's how they that's how they gain market share. And so then after they kind of got it, then I think it they was just a normal yeah. yeah they they bailed. You know Ugh. you can't get a five dollar foot long to save your life. Nowadays.
1: <laughs> well, so for for you um, those I don't know about six years on that show. Yeah, you've said it really made a huge impression on you and kind of taught you the roots of what you. N- Know and go by in this business, and I wonder if you can talk about. It sounds like it was seeing how Steve handled being yeah. number one on the call sheet, running the thing. Like, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. What was it about that?
0: Well, that was the, that was the truth. I actually, you know, uh, I had an opportunity because I actually I had landed a deal for to do my own sitcom in that period, somewhere in that gap, and so I actually had a you know an opportunity to create a show and be my own guy. And then Steve got this opportunity and wanted me to be on his show, and I actually saw him do me and the boys his first show, uh-huh. and I was like, you know, I think, you know, to be in the shotgun seat and watch how television is made, and and see, you know, kind of being able to not have the uh, the onus of being the num didn't you know the number one guy there, and and still have you know that real connective power it was just a good 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 space for me and it was always it's always been the kind of way I like to move mm-hmm. kind of like you know in the front but in the shadows yeah. like I don't you know I don't necessarily have to be the, the number one guy but I do you know want to get in free you know so <laughs> <laughs> I do want to get in the club free <laughs> <laughs> well it was a, it was a good calculation yeah, there yeah, I mean what good. a run
1: so uh okay this brings us in the middle, I guess this started, it definitely started right in the middle of the Steve Harvey show run, the Kings of Comedy Tour. Yeah. So I guess to start with, who is Walter Latham, who I believe at that point was just in his twenty,
0: mid-20s? Young dude. Yeah, he was a young guy. He was a promoter. And Walter actually was a person that, you know, uh, I think that really led to, you know, him pulling out the Kings of Comedy. He just had a he had a, a great deal of vision of what entertainment could be. Uh as a young as a young guy, he had a lot of hubris and he, you know, believed in his in, in himself. And so he would do each of us individually on tours, you know. So we would do uh, you know, theater shows, you know, 2000 seats, you know, 3000 seats, 5000 seats. But, you know, Steve, Bernie Mac, uh, he would do them mm-hmm. as their promoter. Uh, he had a he did a tour with me and D.L. Hewley as the host of Comic View because D.L. hosted BET's Comic View before me, and then I became the host, and he had the idea of putting us out together as this and taking young BT comics with us as these other act support acts. So... We were out, and I think, you know, at that point, that's when it came to him to do one big kind of mega fest kind of feeling show where all your favorites show up at once. And so that was a that was an amazing time. The, the original Kings was, you know, it was just rock star comedy. Nobody was doing it like that. I mean, we had big stars that were going individually doing arenas. Uh, but not in a group, like not that kind of like everybody's there, like a Coachella feel, like I'm there for all my favorite acts are kind of here.
1: Totally, and we should just remind people. So I believe uh, Latham kind of puts this, you know, brings the group together in 97. 98, 99, 2000, you guys are out there doing it. Um, Initially, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it was just Steve, Bernie, and yourself. Then DL yeah. joined a bit later, in ninety nine. But this idea—I mean, within—you uh, know—you'd all—you'd each had your own fan bases. Yeah. But there was something about having you all together. I mean, this became the highest grossing comedy tour ever.
0: Yeah. There it, it was—I uh, mean, it was—it was one of those things. Like it became a phenomenon. I mean, to be able to go in and and sell, like, four United Centers in Chicago, four MCI Centers in in D.C. This was crazy numbers, uh, you know, and the the experience that people were having just culturally. Um, and that was the tour. We toured so long before people even saw the movie. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea is that we, like, really had such a great time out touring the show and being – friends and having that great camaraderie and it was just totally different than how we all had done it as individuals and so I uh, it was rock star comedy before kevin hart yeah right <laughs> <laughs> well so the interesting
1: thing you, you know you mentioned the movie movie doesn't come until august of 2000 well i don't know more than two years since you guys started yeah i guess spike lee was aware obviously of the yeah. tour and here's something he said quote it was the most successful comedy tour ever, and mainstream America didn't even really know about it. Close quote. So I guess his idea was, we'll film it and put it out there, and let's see. I mean, if why why wouldn't it also play with everyone else? Yeah. Um. So I guess two performances in February 2000, shot in Charlotte. Yeah. Twelve cameras was you know for you guys as the performers w- was it any different? doing those shows that were filmed for the movie or was it just another, you know, another two nights of doing what you've been doing dozens of times?
0: Well, I mean, you know, of course you, you recognize your shooting, but I mean, Spike, you know, and, and, you know, Spike was a choice for us. Like all of us kind of, you know, we were looking at how do we shoot this movie and, you know, and of course Spike, you know, he, he pitched, Uh, His thought around it and him being like that real purveyor of culture and, you know, this great film filmmaker, we like, oh, man, it just comes with this extra cachet. And again, you know, because he's a pro, he was able to disappear into the scene. So like on stage, it didn't feel any different. Only thing that we, you know, we had to shoot a lot of stuff in order for you to cut in and out. That's the only thing, you know, for us. We were like, all right, what's this? We got to be at the car places. this <laughs> right. Got to get up and go And the bus. We want to bring the cameras on the bus. we like, whoa, man, we're we we we're free on the bus. <laughs> right. we don't, right. No, no, we need the cameras to capture that. And you're like, right. oh, okay, got it. Right. So that was the thing. Those were the things we got aware of. But the night, the doing it, it was amazing. It was all fine.
1: Here's a another. I don't know. You you can confirm if it's true or not. But on the in the film, I believe if I re, remember correctly, the order of the performers is Steve, DL, U, Bernie. Right? Yeah. That was not how it was fi- shot. No, no,
0: no. What what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I closed that tour uh bernie used to bernie he he said he called it the hammock he was like he had been on a big tour before he'd always been like the main dude and he was like man i just don't want to go last so (laughs) that was kind of his position everybody like i right, fine um when we started the tour i used to go first so before we added dl i would go first and we had a like an opening act i would go first then Bernie, he was in the hammock, and then Steve. <laughs> and then Steve became the host. We added DL, and then I went to the middle, uh, and, then, and, and then Bernie went to this hammock spot, yeah. and I closed. And that was just the way the tour was. And so, uh, you know, but for the movie, his his comedy was way bluer and, and and, you know, edgier. And it just made sense that we would, like, close the show on something that was, like, super raw.
1: One more question before we talk about just how big this movie was when it came out, but... So you guys were spending a lot of time together. I mean, what was it like fifty fifty shows a year or yeah, something?
0: Yeah, a lot of lot of shows, a lot of work.
1: Did you guys all? I mean, I know it could be your best friend if you spend that much yeah. time with somebody, you can get sick of them. Yeah. Did you guys all mesh well, or were there? How did? It, what was it like well, behind that, the scenes?
0: It was a couple of legendary beefs. I mean, Steve <laughs> and Bernie, they they had their little rips. <laughs> Everybody else was cool. Like me, DL. We, we're still like boys to this day and families me and Steve so mm-hmm. I was always this kind of flow me and Bernie I always flowed in between right. they you know again those they, those they had that kind of uh overtly alpha male energy both of them so they would they, you know they definitely had some runs there at the end that I felt at the end of the tour where it was like okay you know they didn't necessarily have to be in the same room with each other and that's and actually
1: supposedly partly why we maybe never saw a sequel.
0: Well, you know, I think it really kinda came down to, the sequel really kinda came down in that Walter thought he was the real king of comedy. Oh. So <laughs> So It's never he got, he got to the point where he didn't need us. We oh, was like, Oh, geez. okay, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Get up there and tell some jokes there. Right, right. So but, you know, I think it it just it got it got very business business kinda oriented and, and murky and people started to like have their own corners, you know, and, and I think that's like any kinda like Big band, you know, you got to figure out that out. But you know, again, unfortunately, Bernie passed, man. But you know, toward the end, it was we were really in talks of like figuring it out, like how we can go back out, do a little run, shoot another special, and then once Bernie passed, it just for the rest of us, it just didn't seem like the right idea. I always get this every day. Somebody go like, "Well, put it it should be you, Dave Chappelle," you know. I was like, "Those, you know, like that's not. It's a, it's a." it's a thing that works like in you know in in concert it yeah. just has to be all right so right. you know those well, guys are legends for sure
1: and the way that that so paramount puts out the spike movie or yeah. you you guys yeah. spike's movie of you guys i don't yeah. want to make it that it's his thing but yeah. uh comes out in august makes this is a 13 million dollar budget apparently 38 Million dollar gross that yeah. that you know as you say you, Kevin Hart and people have followed but there this was like unprecedented
0: yeah no this was crazy at the time and nobody was doing that you know I mean uh, like you said it was a couple of people did arena tours before us be it Dice and uh Eddie Murphy I think even Martin did Uh but those are the ones I can think but nobody had did this group thing and so that made it feel so much like a you know super exciting idea and it it just did well when in Now, kind of to Spike's point, we we didn't have any press. We were like maybe number two uh, on touring, like behind Janet Jackson and Rolling Stones one year, and nobody even knew about us. It was not talked about. It wasn't. What do you think that was about trade? You know, again, I think that one time comedy comedy was very. you know, it it had started to be very kind of, you know, separate. It was black comedy, it was white comedy. I think that ours was very uniquely and very super specifically considered black comedy. Like, and, and so it just didn't feel like it was important to anybody. And I would think, you know, the same kind of thing goes, you know, in the TV shows. Oftentimes the shows kind of fall, unless they have a crossover appeal, like unless they somehow... Resignate to the larger society, the the importance that they have to our culture doesn't seem to translate to them what it means for overall economy mm-hmm. business. And so that's what we kind of felt was the the, 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 the case in that. It was like, you know, because the blue-collar guys came after us and, of course, was able to, you know, take that same concept and, and become, you know, super rich off theirs, you know.
1: Do you? Did, I mean, again, you had a following before any of this, but did you? Did it change anything? The success of the film.
0: Uh, oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the film again opened up the the idea that a lot more people became exposed to us, and and it became way more accept, acceptable to. Go out and laugh and be, you know, even you know, for the society at whole, well, all cultures was like now invited into this world of comedy and saying, Oh, I didn't even know this existed. Like that's funny and, and so, you know, my audience became bigger and more diverse. Uh, you know, you know, of course doing like commercials with Bud Light and all those kind of things. But Bowl, Kings of Comedy, right? yeah. yeah, Kings of Comedy definitely opened it up and I started to see you know, just a lot more kind of, and then, of course, eventually international exposure. You just started to be known, yeah. you know, people like, oh, man, they tell, telling telling you jokes and walking up. you like, what? <laughs> oh, 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 Kings of Comedy. Yeah, Got right. it. I With
1: Kizikans Free Shoes, Motion sounds something like this. Also, 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Well, I guess the other big thing is that film took off for you, right? Yeah. So um can I just prompt you about a few of these? You know, we don't Good. have to go in depth, but just a yeah. few, few of your more memorable, most memorable ones. Eddie, the old school barber yeah, cool in moment. Barbershop. This is two thousand two. Eventually, there's two sequels. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- there are moments there where you you do some dramatic yeah. stuff too, which yeah. was. But just uh, what you know that one and the idea that it became this big franchise
0: again, such a unique space, man. It was one of those. Uh, it was one of those roles, uh, you know, I, I went in for a read. I think I knew one of the producers, uh, you know, the producers that were doing the movie. And they were like, yeah, we just come just read it, you know, help us hear it out loud. You know, one of those kind of days, there's a bunch of actors around. And, um, you know, I did, I wanted to read the old man and I did it and I was had everybody laughing. So they thought that was just for the read. And they were like, all right, cool, when we cast you, we want you to be the guy that's you know, robbing the uh, convenience store. And I said, no, I want to play the old man. Yeah. And it's like, for real? <laughs> I was like, yeah. So so it was a lot, lot going against it. A lot of people like, we should hire a real old actor. We don't want this. But, uh, you know, I told him. And, I, you know, I had this whole idea looking like Frederick Douglass. I grew <laughs> my hair. I that my that was my real hair in the first one. Like I did all of that on purpose. So amazing. Yeah.
1: Um. Okay. That was two thousand two, two thousand three. We got the Cone Brothers, Intolerable Cruelty. Oh, fun. Um. Yeah. I mean, just. They're, they're interesting filmmakers, I imagine. They are, and
0: you know, and of course, the opportunity to work with George Clooney right. and Catherine Zeta-Jones and Jeffrey Rush—it was just some legends—a uh, part of that film. And you know, and, and uh, you know, the Cohen brothers—they they were they were guys that you know, again, they have the their unique sense of humor the way they kind of see a film, and and so just inside that I was able to kind of find a lane that I thought was a funny character to play, yeah. and Gush Patches, you know, he <laughs> goes down. I'll nail your ass.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the next year is Barbershop 2, Back in Business. The year after that, F. Gary Gray, Be Cool, the sequel to Get Shorty, yeah. you, Travolta. Um, yeah.
0: The Rock, the, the young ro- Rock. Yeah. Nobody knew The Rock was going Vince Vaughn. Oh, Harvey Cottel, Uma Thurman, that movie was lit, man. Totally. That was like that was crazy. So uh, you know, that was another another really cool opportunity. Evergary Gray was a, one of my uh favorite directors. I'd loved uh, you, know, you know, he of course he did Friday, which we was a hood classic everybody mm-hmm. loved. And then the negotiator was one of my favorites with Sam. And you know, he, you didn't know him to do action movies. Uh, but once he kind of done that one, I was like, okay. And then, of course, we all loved, you know, the original Get Shorty. And so be cool to be able to do a, you know, uh, Elmore Leonard kind of, you know, piece and to be in the film with all these great actors. And then and I just love that uh, F. Gary Gray wanted to kind of cast me out of type, like, you know, like, okay, not straight comedy. You're this kind of Harvard business gangster. You're a, <laughs> a warden graduated gangster, street right. gangster. I right. was like, yes, I, I know this person. So right. uh, it was just fun to play that character, one of my favorite roles right there.
1: So what you're talking about, about not, you know, I don't either people seeing you or you maybe in some cases pursuing not just, uh, not just, quote unquote, but, uh, you know, a comedic lane. There are others here that people may need a reminder, but, like, talk to me, for instance, Cassie Lemons. You're playing this DJ. This, I think, the beginning of you and Don Cheadle, I know, are tight. That was... um, But this is an interesting kind of dramatic part. Same thing uh, a year later, Cadillac Records. um, Music biz in the 40s through the 60s. But, like, these are dramatic parts. Did you always um, aspire to get beyond the comedy box or was that just things that came like, what like what was that important
0: to you to get to do those definitely important to me i think you know i've always loved the idea of, of being very versatile you know being able to do stand-up to be able to you know do it from television to film uh to be able to you know do broadway to uh, do uh, you know commercials like any way i can entertain the crowd man you know i just i, I loved it so you know, of course, you know, some of my favorite comedians became really strong, dramatic actors. The late Robin Williams, mm-hmm. you know, one of my favorites. Even Richard Pryor did really great roles and, and surprisingly roles. And I just love that, that when you see a comedian, like, take something and make it really real. And I was like, uh, I so I definitely have, you know, a strong desire to do that and, and would look for it and would tell my, you know, you know, my professionals, agents, and managers that, you know, find me something, man. I want to do something different.
1: Well, and you referenced uh, Broadway. That was the same year as Cadillac Records' American Buffalo on Broadway, which is, uh you know, it can be mm. funny, but it's pretty dark. Yeah. Um That was a big one. I know more recently First Reform for Paul Schrader. Yeah. Year. Um, so it's just interesting that, you know, obviously you've been so great in comedy that, it maybe sometimes overshadows these others, but I think there's there's uh, something for people to think about. Yeah, but, man, yes. Uh, so this brings us to uh, one last thing before we talk about your, your most recent activities, and that's sort of this um, last, let's say, decade or so on TV, regular series TV, first um, with TV Land, where it starts off with this guest spot on uh Hot in Cleveland which becomes its ho- its own thing the Soul Man for uh 54 episodes over like 4 or 5 years um and pretty much not long after that into the neighborhood on CBS which um I guess I just wonder uh that's a that's a different lifestyle than other kinds of uh work you know doing series TV I know it's it, it's demanding but yeah. you seem to like it
0: yeah, you know, it became a choice of course, you know, uh LA, you know, we had the movie, the movie business started to move out of LA and so all the movies that I would get would, you know, take me away Vancouver you you're in Toronto you're in Shreveport you you know like and so my kids were started to get to an age where their schedules first they could come with me and it was easy and they, or they can be home and they can come and stay for you know a month or so but it started to get really you know awkward where you know so I was like television just became a choice for me to have a little bit more kind of normalcy with my wife and my kids and to have a life that felt like a regular life. So i made the choice to do television during that period. And, and so, you know, got really lucky. I loved the soul man. It was fun. Uh, TV land was, you know, again, one of the smaller networks in that Viacom family, but they were in the Viacom family. So that made, you know, that, that that's what made me comfortable. The deal felt the same as any place else. And, but it allowed me the kind of freedom to do a show that I wanted to do and it was it was fun and you know we had a great good time of course I get to work with the amazing Nisi Nash who's done so many cool things since then and that cast was amazing and then the, the neighborhood came along right after and I was developing other shows for CBS we had uh you know got a bigger deal to uh, produce and create cuz I uh, co co-created and produced The Soul Man uh, and so the neighborhood, you know, opportunity came, and uh, it was another, you know, just end up being another kind of great choice, great win. I love it. It's the best job in Hollywood. I always tell people that. I mean, it seems like it's a lot, but doing multicam sitcoms, you don't bear my office hours. Are, it's like, dude, I might as well be a. Uh, I don't. I don't even know who works less than me. Man.
1: Oh, interesting. Like, okay, because I figured it's it's so it's not. All-consuming.
0: No, man, it's so big. It's great. One, you give a great cast, but it is we. You know, we have shoot days, Mondays and Tuesdays. Two, Mondays you shoot without an audience. Tuesdays in the old days you have an audience yeah, there. Yeah, and you know that's fun. You're putting on a play in front of people, yeah. uh, but. You know, but Wednesdays is a quick rehearsal, Thursdays is another short rehearsal, Fridays is a it, it, Fridays was my early day because I, as a stand up, I used to like to go and work on Fridays right. and Saturdays, and so the, the the network was like, Cool, long as we feel good about the show, peace out! Not so, bad.
1: And here we are, five seasons, yeah, just finished your fifth, six. yeah, yeah. I bro. mean, that these days. On network TV, that doesn't really happen that often. You know,
0: super rare, man. And it's one of those things that, you know, I think we're all still having a great time, uh, you know, and I look forward to that run, whatever it can be. You know, you have, you know, shows that ran forever. I try always convince the, you know, the execs at CBS like I I want the the African-American sitcom record, yeah. which would be the Jeffersons at 11 seasons. Okay, so you're going to keep going. So it's like, let's go. <laughs> like, you know, so I don't know if they're going to do it. That you sounds know, cool. But, but I, you'd be up for I love it. I'd li- I li- I li- I like to be in the books as, you know. That's like, cool. Yeah.
1: Well, and we'll just just as a, a last side note here, you as yourself, I mean, people obviously respond to you when you're doing stand-up. Where there's an element of yourself, but you, I mean, think about just the variety. I'm saying to the listeners, not you. You, I'm sure you've thought like 2005 White House Correspondents Association dinner. Who wants to be a millionaire? 2021 Emmys. There aren't too many people that could do those three different things and have people, you know, connect with the, you know, have it work with people. Um, I guess it maybe comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, just sort of a. Uh, relatability as opposed to, you know, what, unattainability. Or some people feel like they're, you know, Julia Roberts doesn't seem like a real person to people right. or somebody, you know. But but there's something that allows you to, to succeed in all these different kinds of areas.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I, you know, it's something I embrace. I embrace that idea of being able to understand. And I think that, you know, it comes up. A little bit from my background, I was kind of, you know, I was raised in a small rural town, Carruthersville, Missouri, before we moved to St. Louis. So then, and then moved right into the inner city. So you have that combination of being a small town guy that knows how to operate in the big city. You know went to college I worked in corporate America you know I, I hung with street dudes right. so I you know I, I had this whole thing you know where I feel like I could just have conversations with so many people and I like to take that on stage I, I like to kind of know that that audience is not filled with just one person right. you know like as well as people travel there's people from different cultures in this room they some people do this some people do that and I could write a joke for like that that space and hopefully let it be shared amongst the group. Right. So it's not like me kind of talking to one particular group of people at any given time. Right. And I like that. I, you know, I, I, I had to learn that uh, when I, when I was telling somebody I bombed on stage, Steve, you know, uh, came and get me because I tried to switch my show one time. Um, to talk to executives only. Like, uh-huh. it was a room full of executives. And I tried to switch up and, and thought I was speaking, you know, you know, to this room of very smart people. <laughs> and I bombed. And then Steve went up and cussed them out, like, like in some regular, <laughs> and they were dying. Yeah. And he was like, man, just be yourself. Don't, yeah. you know, if people get it, then don't worry about it. That's and I was like, that was a great lesson, you know. And I, uh-huh. I always tell young comedians that, too, to this day. Just lock in, man. Don't worry about it.
1: So just when it didn't seem possible that there was anything else that you could do that you had not already done, here we are. It's 2023, and Amistad, an imprint, an imprint of HarperCollins, is about to put out Flipping Boxcars, a novel co-written by Alan Eisenstock with yourself. Yeah, your prints are you with Alan yeah, Eisenstock. Yeah.
0: How did we? How did we get to this? Oh man, you know this was uh, really something that was in, in, inside of me, man. I had this book idea or this story idea uh, about my grandfather, and, and, and this comes, uh, I guess, as a guy growing up again, single parent household. My my dad wasn't really there. My mom raised me, but a lot of the things that I kind of feel define me as a male, uh, you know and the way i kind of operate as a man came through some osmosis dna some mm-hmm. weird factor and my mother would often say you know my daddy would did, my daddy would have did something like that now I, he had passed before i was you know born so so when
1: you say things that reminded her like i mean i'm just imagining here but you have always dressed yeah. really nicely is that one of the or yeah. you know like in a way that's almost uh, yeah. Of a different era. Is yeah, that exactly. one of the things that she's talking about? Or I what? think so. Yeah, yeah,
0: because I was like in in high school, junior high school, wanted to wear mohair sweaters, and I needed a certain. I needed my shirts pressed. Interesting. She would be like, what? <laughs> "What kid needs his shirt pressed?" I'm like, "I need I need a tie to go with this, mom." You know, and would you know, but would would learn to go to the Goodwill or the trade, you know, thrifty stores and figure out to put my outfits together without it being a burden to her. Uh, You know, witty. You know, would say witty things. Entrepreneur, always trying to think of a, you know, she would say, "Oh, that's scheming up a dream." Always (laughs) scheming up a dream. That was my, you know, my grandfather always had like a a play going. Always had a move he needed to make. That was the next move. And so I, you know, I kind of thought, like, man, to be basically to to bend me in the forties, where not necessarily it was a like an easy path to find yourself. You you had all the the. You know, the racism of America, you had all of the challenges of being in a small rural town, all these things. And to think like, man, these were the this was the identity that I took on a a generation later Mm -hmm. to actually have the opportunity to do it in a big way. And so that really was the inspiration to be able to kind of say, man, our Mm -hmm. lives are connected to the people that we are um, born from that we are have D, that we share DNA with and and somehow we we are a part of that train years later it's the same you know train moving yeah and so um I was inspired to uh, write a tale because I never met him so I would just I would have these machinations of him just Popping my head like you know he's on his way you know to Memphis to go do something and <laughs> and I would have a whole scene of like what would happen and so I I would write him down and jot him down and when when Amistad, uh approached me about doing a book I was like this is the thing I want to do I don't want to do uh, another you know comedian this is my life right, and how right. I became to be uh, and so they were like you know we like it and we gave him a little tidbit of what it was. And I kind of worked on this in another way because I, you know, after it started producing television, that was my first choice. So I wanted to write a TV show, and I had the outlines of that. Oh, this same story could have been a TV. Yeah. Because I was wondering, a, a it sounds cinematic. It. could be, yeah. like,
1: maybe now that it, once the book gets out, maybe yeah. would you want to oh, bring it to sure. the screen? Yeah?
0: Oh, for sure. Definitely. Uh, yeah, we have a version that was a TV show. Uh, and then, you know, when when the opportunity to write a book, it felt like a smarter place to start to me. I was like, oh, let's just do the book and let it tell a nice, great fictional tale. And, you know, I had a, such a great time with it. I, I teed it up, uh, even in the book, if you read it. It's yeah, got yeah. like three cliffhangers in there oh, where yeah. you're like, I want to know what else happened. Totally. And so that, uh, I, I believe it could be a great series if uh, if we really catch a wave with it.
1: Well, so the process of writing a book. yeah. Takes a lot of discipline. I I am trying to do something maybe that will one. Day, I know it's yeah. tough. Uh, w- did you enjoy it? Did you? What was your? You know, some people need to get up every day at like five a.m. and write for two hours or whatever version of that. Do, do you? Are you? Discipline like that? Was it fun? Just what was the process? Yeah, like? the
0: process, you know, Alan was a really great, great co- collaborator. Uh because I had a lot of pages and I had the idea and I had so many ideas. Like and sometimes it just random. They would yeah. just be a random thought. I'd be like, yo, you know, my grandfather would just in my mind he would go, Hey, the suit don't makes the man, but it makes the difference. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, Huh? <laughs> you'd like, What would you like, all right, cool, bet. I like that one, yeah. you know, so and so uh, these were little things that I would just kind of jot down. And what Alan and the idea we literally just would talk, get on the phone once a week, sometimes twice a week, kind of talk about what we think is a you know the story and laugh and you know and start coming up with things, adding stuff to the pot. And then you know he would write pages, I would write pages, and we would try to collect, mess them up. And then he finally you know helped me like say, all right, cool. What if we do it around? Four days, it's an event, it's driven, it's got a clock, and we can tell the story. And then we can figure out how to get all of this information in there. And that became the real cool puzzle, too. So, you know, we just started to do the book like that. Took, you know, of course, well over a year because you're just going back and forth. And you're like, I don't know about this one. I wouldn't say that.
1: Well, when you – so when you start, when you started on this, did you know – how it was going to end or do you sort of paint yourself into a oh, corner? No, oh, definitely. Yeah.
0: No, no, that, <laughs> That's This is the stuff, right? This is yeah. really what Arthur goes through because yeah. you don't, you think you do. Yeah. you like, oh, and then you start to get into it and you're like, man, the what I thought would be the ending, I had to tell that story early on to mm-hmm. be able to make it make sense for you to care. Right. So now I don't have an ending because what I thought was the ending was I needed to get that in the book so that you can be like, all right, now, I, now I'm, care about the character.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of yeah. in terms of like painting your your characters into corners or whatever. I mean, in this case, right, there's an element of a guy who's gambled a lot. Yeah. Used to winning, but then can get himself into a corner. Yeah, get himself into trouble. Yeah,
0: yeah. and like most of us, we yes. you, yeah <laughs> we count on our we count on our hubris and our our ability to you know do magic somehow throughout our lives. We yeah. you know you'll be like I can't pay my bills, and you're like I don't know what's gonna happen, and then somehow you life work. works. You're yeah. like okay, and then, and then you start to lean on it, and then you know, and sometimes you can put yourself in a real hole and that's what i love about you know this particular character in this story and we did we kind of we dug some holes and we were like trying to figure out <laughs> You know, but you know the challenge is to do it and still be true to the character, still be true to the storytelling and decide like, okay, even though I kind of put myself in this wall, what what could happen to a guy like this? what would be his move? And so you know oh and you just get inspired, we just go again and so oh, that's great. it was just really fun, man.
1: So just last few things to wrap it up would you? having been through this experience would you do another would you like to write another book
0: I already started man. really I'm super excited like I said I dug I dug I dug some holes and then uh, just recently of course after going through this whole process and uh, but I had to do the audio book and once I did the audiobook I became more inspired like but when I finally like read the last few pages of the audiobook I just started to clearly see more stories. More and I uh, so I started to jot down how I would start this story and what would happen and what different would characters or same characters babe same characters. So characters. Baby's there, of course, we expand this world a little bit, yeah. uh but babe is my you know he is my you know my muse yeah. character that drives it that's great um.
1: Up-and-coming comedians, who are you most impressed by these days?
0: Oh, man, there's so many funny young comics out there. Of course, we had an opportunity to tour uh, this last summer with uh, D.C. Youngfly. Uh, And, you know, he's just a hard-working guy, creative, bold. Uh, I like... um, uh, I, I, and it's hard to call these guys young comedians right now, but <laughs> Roy Wood Jr. is yeah, one sure, of my sure. favorites, man. Like I, I just followed in your footsteps just, to the White House Correspondents' yeah, Association. So yeah, so amazing. I did hit him immediately after that. Just thought he was really killing the game. Uh, you know, I, 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 I love a lot of these, a lot of comedians out here. So many. Talented people, and I'm a big fan of comedy, so I just saw Rami Youssef last night for the first time. I'd never seen him. My wife was watching the special, and I was like, I've seen his show. Yeah, sure. But never his stand-up, and it was like, oh, this dude's clever and bold and edgy and different. Interesting. So I love that kind of stuff. Your dream role. I think Ooh, I've heard
1: one yeah. over the
0: years that you've said, but I don't know if it's still the one. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of changed now because, you know, I used to always want to be a uh, uh, play Marcus Garvey. Yes, I always wanted to do it. But now I know this great actor. He's about to do Marcus Garvey and and he's amazing. Who's that? Uh, is, is, is it yah I believe it's yah Oh, yeah. Yaya. 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 I think it's yah doing it. And, you know, it's one of those people, if you know, once they get a hold to it, you're like, <laughs> All right, all right. <laughs> all right. I'm gonna tap out, like you know. But but I just love the idea of the character in the role. Um, so it is. It's a couple of you know. It's a serious. It's a serious movie idea we've been developing about a judge in in Mississippi that I want to play. And I think this is great. This kind of uh, a person that I think is a lot like me. And uh, but then I love the the Bingo Longs and Traveling All Stars. I don't know how you make a 19. Uh, Afro, I mean, a Negro League baseball movie nowadays where it can make sense to the youth. It's so far away. There's removed. a good doc actually now. Have yeah. you heard about
1: The League? It's uh, uh, Sam Pollard, I think, is this oh, filmmaker. Yeah. And Magnolia's put out. It's really good about oh, the Negro good. League. It made me think about okay. it. Okay, yeah. that'd be great. Yeah. I think,
0: uh, but I love I love that kind of slice of culture stuff. Yeah. That's more fun, more you know, less to do with you know the kind of oppression of the '70s, but more like people figured figured it out and yeah. how to live it and be and had lives. And I love that 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 part of our culture where we you know we see how we see ourselves and not necessarily you know the 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 the, the atrocities that yeah. we've had lived through.
1: Last question, Um, you know, I don't know how often you – you're a busy guy, so I don't know how often you get a chance to kind of reflect on how, you know, like we've done over the last hour, just on how far you've come from where it began, what you've done. Just uh, now that we're talking about it and thinking about it, just what do you make of it? It's a pretty amazing story for a guy who, you know, would have been content, it sounds like, to go to the – fame kind of school I mean yeah. it's it's worked out and yeah. what did you say your mom said you were a uh, some kind of dream dreamer? scheme of a scheme dream. of a dream scheme well it dream. worked
0: yeah exactly no it's so true man I think you know I definitely feel very blessed to have had the career that I've had uh, I you know I, I always pride myself on being able to do a number of things now, of course you know I've had an opportunity to, to direct um, you know, I'm toying with some music. You know, like all these things. It's like, hey, give it a shot. Just yeah. try it, man. So, you know, and of course, you know, just always want to kind of, you know, continue to push and be creative. I love the fact that. You know, you recognize, and it was, we were talking about this the other day, how when we were young, somehow 50 seemed really old. And we like, when someone's 50, you're like, oh my God. But now you recognize like, like the, the opportunity to get up every day and still have great opportunity in front of you. You just don't feel like you're winding down. You feel like you're turning up. And so that's... Uh, that's how I feel with everything that I've done in the past. I still feel like, yo, I got so many things I could do and go forward and live to and try for. And, you know, youth is uh, definitely a thing that, you know, people take great pride in having because you feel like I get to live forever. And sometimes you get you get a little older and start to think like it's over and maybe I am should be winding down. But, you know, I'm turning it up. So that's how I feel right now. I'm having a awesome. great time. On well. that.
1: Thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it, brother. This is awesome. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests, and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.